Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Join Dr. Jason Kinderchuk and I as we discuss the four-month interval between your vaccine doses. Remember, the first vaccine you're offered is the best vaccine. Also going to be talking about mental health with Ronan Levy of Field Trip Health. We're talking specifically about therapeutic psychedelics and menopause. Such a challenging time of life, but it's a natural transition, but it might make your heart go pitter-patter or skip a beat. Dr. John Weisler joins me to discuss the role of estrogen at menopause. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Have you gotten your vaccine yet? I will never ask anyone that question again after I did that yesterday. And I don't even know why I asked that person or that couple, actually. These are challenging times from so many different perspectives. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, a show about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. Good evening. I am Maureen McGrath, a registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, sexual health educator, and host of this program. Good evening, Leo. How are you? It's my anniversary today. Hey. Nine years. Wow. <laughs> Beginning of May. Congratulations. That's yeah. actually like my lucky number as well. Nine right, or three. Well, I'm fired up here for you. All right, let's roll. It. Let's roll. Absolutely. And if you would like to roll and be part of the show, please give me a call. The number to call is one 877 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. You can text me there as well or email me in Although we cover a variety of health subjects on the program, this show is not a replacement for a visit to your doctor virtually or by phone. Tonight on the program, we are going to learn about mental health and the psychedelic experience. I'm going to volunteer for that one. The menopausal heart. And uh, I'd like you to put the kids to bed right now because we are talking dirty a little bit later on the program. And then we're going to get down and dirty and talk about those coronavirus deniers. Yes, they are out there and they come in all sorts of forms, but they seem to have one thing in common. So we've got lots to talk about, but right now. And now Maureen's Health Headline. Fortunately, he weighs in every Sunday night. He is assistant professor in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, University of Manitoba, and holds a Canada research chair in the molecular pathogenesis of emerging and re-emerging viruses. He is currently seconded to collaboratively advance research and development against COVID-19. Good evening, Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. How are you? I'm doing good, Maureen. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Your immunity is building up. You had your vaccine last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know we're we're getting closer, right? So, yeah, uh, yeah, it's it, 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 it's good to know. I mean, certainly, I think I'm I'm happy to see that so many other people are are starting to get vaccinated. Uh, in particular, I think the you know our essential workers uh, and uh, and those that kind of have you know faced the disproportionate burden of of this disease so far. Um, but yeah, it's you know there's some light at the end of the tunnel. I, I think there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, I, I just want to just step back in your career a little bit um, because there's so much. We're going to talk a little bit later about vac- about uh, coronavirus deniers or, you know. Um, and yeah. uh, I was talking to somebody today, in fact, and uh, we were talking about how, you know, you just didn't come by this career lightly. You actually did well in high school, I would imagine. And then you went to undergrad school um, and you... Um, um, 
then went to graduate school. You have a PhD. You were actually focused on advancing research and development against COVID-19. I mean, is it fair enough to say you are all things COVID all the time? I think it's you know it's fair to say I'm all things probably emerging virus all the time. Okay. Um, you know I I, I think that uh, certainly it's listen I I got into uh, into this because of uh, of Ebola and, and really reading the hot zone and that's that's what pushed me into uh, you know into into research in the first place and mm-hmm. you know by some miracle it's worked out. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's every day for me, 24-7. Right, exactly. And so um, how much of your research is done on YouTube? <laughs> yeah, how much of your I, valid you know, research? I, 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 listen, I, I certainly have YouTube on in the background a lot when, uh, when I'm writing manuscripts and stuff. But yeah, it, it is not a place that, uh, that I tend to go to for, for primary uh, science information. Right. And so where would you go for primary scientific information? Yeah, you know, it's it's certainly a great question, right? So listen, there are a few databases that that we use. PubMed is is probably the one that's the most renowned. Um, You know, really, it's a repository for really any biomedical uh, research uh, that's published across the globe. Um, And there's, I mean, there's, you know, papers dating back you know, a hundred years or more that, that you can pull up. And, and that's really where, where we go to find primary research information. Right. So, I mean, there's a large percentage of people out there that, that, the believe, that believe all sorts of things about the coronavirus. But it does also seem that people have changed that thought and they, they do now believe that coronavirus exists, but they still think that it is a, a conspiracy. Um, they think we're being controlled uh, by the government. They think there's a microchip being injected or maybe even Windex. <laughs> Yeah. There's all sorts of thoughts about that. There's this idea that the vaccines have not been studied enough. And these are all things that I'm talking to you about that I have heard from people myself. Um, so yeah, I, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, what's interesting about all of this is, is really with, with COVID, I think it's caused a lot of us to go back into the literature and, and really to kind of delve back into, you know, smallpox, 1918, what, what did we see? Did we see the same sort of, you know, societal discontent within different groups? And, you know, it's amazing, Maureen. Like, you look back at some of those papers from the late 1800s and uh, the, the discussions about people that did not believe smallpox was real or did not believe in vaccination. Um, certainly in 1918, the Anti-Mask League. Uh, you know, you, you read of these, these, these different occurrences. And it's, unfortunately, the reality is we are, you know, yet again, kind of in this, you know, kind of a rehashing of what's happened uh, historically. And it's, it perhaps shouldn't be surprising. I think we're seeing a much broader reach because of uh, obviously the, the Internet and people being able to post, you know, on an instantaneous basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but it certainly is nothing that's new. No. And we're having anti uh, I mean, it's been politicized. And so we've had yeah. anti masker uh, rallies in um, Montreal and in Alberta um, uh, over the weekend. And, you know, there's just so much misinformation out there and, and there's so much fear as well. And and a lot of the fear is around the AstraZeneca vaccine. So um, first of all, I just want to say out there, if anyone wants to call and ask a question of the doctor, the number to call is one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. I don't want to ask all the questions, but <laughs> these are the, from your minds, okay? <laughs> the questions that I'm asking. Um, you know, the, the, how uh, 
the, the vaccines work differently. Just quickly, can you just uh, say how the um, Pfizer and Moderna work versus the AstraZeneca and the J&J? Sure. Absolutely. When we look at, at those four vaccines, the uh, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca um, utilize what we call uh, adenovirus. It's basically a, a viral vector. It allows the delivery of uh, the, the spike protein gene um, into our cells. That's a little bit different from the mRNA vaccines with Pfizer and Moderna, where you're actually utilizing mRNA. And mRNA is really the blueprint that basically tells your cells specifically what um, amino acids to put in what order in the sentence that makes up the protein uh, for, for the, the spike protein from the virus. So the, the vaccines are, are very similar in the sense they're both trying to get to the same end game, which is to produce the, or have your cells produce the spike protein. And that is what gets exposed to your immune system. So really the difference is the delivery mechanisms between the two. And, and that's really what we're looking at. You know, it, to me, when we talk about these vaccines, we, we have to talk about the fact of what we're trying to achieve with this and, and how, you know, what, what the similarities are. And then as well, a little bit about, about the differences. And it's really just the technology. Okay, so, so many people are afraid of the AstraZeneca. And I'm hearing more and more that people are walking into the vaccination clinics across the country and they're finding out that they're getting uh, AstraZeneca and they're turning around and leaving. And they want to sign up again in, in hopes of getting the Pfizer. Or there's tremendous relief when you tell somebody you're getting the Pfizer vaccine. Oh, thank goodness. Um, so, you know, is the Pfizer vaccine a better vaccine than the AstraZeneca vaccine? You know, I would argue that right now the, the real world data that we're seeing um, certainly suggests that uh, the, the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine, when you look at the UK data at least, would say that they're actually fairly similar uh-huh. um, in regards to either decreases in hospitalizations or decreased uh, infectivity in people that are vaccinated. Okay. Um, there, there was a big, and so I think we're, they're, they're both good vaccines. You know, Pfizer has worked, uh, I think they, they've had certainly a little bit of an advantage as far as much greater breadth of, um, of uh, protection against any symptom development than uh-huh. AstraZeneca. Uh-huh. But we have to appreciate that these were trialed at different times. And, and I want to get to the clot thing, and I use that in parentheses, but Evelyn is on the line. Good evening, Evelyn. Hi. Um, I, I have a question with regards to vaccines and healthy specimens that are going to get the vaccine. I was just recently told by my family doctor that I need I need to get the vaccine. So um, I'm going to follow suit and be solid with my doctor. I'll I'll trust her. I'll trust her. I have chronic illnesses. That's why I'm asking whether or not there is a big difference between somebody who's got chronic illnesses and getting the vaccine and someone who's healthy. Yeah, the the biggest difference, certainly the biggest difference when when we look at it is that COVID-19 results in more severe symptoms and people that have those chronic underlying illnesses. So, the vaccines are, are certainly um, much more important, I think, as far as that demographic for being able to protect a, against severe disease. But ultimately, it's important for everybody to get vaccinated. Excellent. Okay. Thank you for the answer. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you for the question, Evelyn. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program. Dr. Jason Kindertuck, all things COVID and emerging and re-emerging viruses, is on the line with me to take your calls. And I have Darcy from Winnipeg on the line. Hi, Darcy. Hi there. Thank you. Hi, uh, Dr. Kinderchuk. Thanks for uh, taking my call. 
Um, I uh, had the first dose of Pfizer vaccine about five weeks ago. So from my understanding, um, I believe it was initially the, the idea was to get both doses within 21 days. So then they expanded the uh, first dose to second dose to four months. So I'm just curious, uh, what, uh, what, what was the information that that decision was based on? And how safer would I have been had I gotten both doses, uh, say, within the 21 days as first, uh, as first prescribed? So great questions, Darcy. And I think, the, you know, the first thing to, to, to say as far as the, the comparison between, um, you know, the, the original you know, 21-day uh, uh, delay between the first and second dose versus the, the longer 16-week dose, um, we don't know yet, right? And, and I think part of that is because we're seeing uh, most of this play out right now as far as this extension of the first and second dose. So the comparative um, to be able to do this at, say, a, you know, a, a scientific level, putting numbers to numbers, we, we don't have that yet. The reason for it is there's a couple of reasons. One is in, in the original Pfizer and Moderna trials, when they opted to try to do 21 or 28 days, that was always the optimal, but they have um, people that are outliers that would have fit, you know, a little bit outside of that where they couldn't get back to that, um, you know, that, that second dosage on time. But what they did not see was, um, you know, a complete loss or an ablation of, of their immune responses. And then when you go back historically and you look at the, the separation of doses with vaccines, and certainly we're seeing this now with AstraZeneca, where if you actually uh, have too close of doses, you actually may get a lower response than if you actually have doses that are further apart. Now, the, the, bigger, the biggest question is saying, what, what, is, what is the benefit from a population level? Is it better to get uh, you know, as many people uh, vaccinated with their two doses up front, or are we better to try and get more people vaccinated with that first dose to try and get transmission levels down? And I think what we're seeing, certainly from, from the UK and other places, is that the decrease, uh, sorry, the, the decrease in infection as well as the protection from severe disease following that first dose, whether it's Pfizer, whether it's AstraZeneca, the other uh, vaccines as well, um, what we see is that we actually are seeing decreased transmission. So if we can get that taken care of, then you actually have um, a better chance of being able to get this under control. So, you know, I, I, I think we're all hoping that this is going to work out very well. I think we're, we're taking some very, very educated um, or making some very educated decisions on it. But, of course, we don't have every piece of data to say this is 100% going to work. And, and that's the unfortunate reality in living in a pandemic is do we wait for all that or do we try to make that educated guess and, and make good, hopefully good decisions that, that are going to have an impact on public health? Thank you so much. Uh, we have Anne from White Rock, British Columbia on the line. Hi, Anne. Oh, hi there. How are you? Good. Thanks. You? Good. Thank you. Um, I had a question, if I may. Um, just uh, my aunt brought up a question today regarding the various vaccines. I have um, recovered from cancer, but there's extensive cancer in my family. And she uh, was raising the question if, the, um, if there was a, a difference as far as effectiveness and side effects if you've got a history of cancer. Dr. Kinderchuk? Yeah, I haven't seen anything, to be honest with you. I mean, certainly for, for people who are immunocompromised, there's always the, or, or immunodeficient or, or you know, have any sort of concerns with immune system function. There's a concern always with, with vaccines that, that are what we call live or replicating. We don't have that with, with these vaccines. So I haven't seen any difference in regards to recommendations for people with cancer. 
always good to, you know, to, to obviously check with your overseeing physician and your oncologist, but certainly, um, you know, cancer is one of the groups that, that we look at very seriously as far as being potentially high risk for severe disease and actually recommend uh, for, for vaccination sooner. Absolutely. And Harry is on the line from Edmonton. Good evening, Harry. Uh, good evening, Dr. Kendrick and Maureen. I have a quick question. Uh, and the question is, at my work, they uh, want us uh, to sign a form and then go ahead and do a nasal swap for testing of COVID. Mm-hmm. I was uh, uh, had my vaccine about uh, five weeks ago, just like the chap from Winnipeg did. So, and it was the Pfizer as well. So, how uh, would you say is it effective, or they have side effects? Uh, give me a rundown on it, please. So, we're looking at the effectiveness. Sure. So the, the effectiveness for, for infectivity, I believe that the latest data was that infectivity was decreased about 65% um, following first dose. So it, it gives you protection. We certainly know in, in regards to hospitalization and severe disease, that one dose of, of Pfizer works extremely well. I believe it was 80% or more protection from, from severe disease. Uh, infectivity, it's decreased uh, you know, at least half, if not more. Um, but of course, that's still, that, that means you could potentially get infected. Um, it doesn't mean that it's 100% protective against it. So it, it's going to be uh, certainly quite good, um, but, but you have to get that second dose. And, you know, so I think you have some comfortability that you are more protected uh, that, than you possibly would be if you didn't have a vaccine um, and that it looks really good, but it will be better once you get that second dose. Okay. Thanks to right. all the callers. Listen, we're up against the clock. Sorry to cut you off, Dr. Kendrachuk, as usual. He'll be back next week, right? I hope. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath, registered nurse, hosting this program. For you, the COVID-19 pandemic has amplified the spiraling mental health crisis that is facing Canada and the world. Nearly 40% of Canadians say their mental health has declined due to COVID-19. And shockingly, 30% of people with major depression don't respond to the current medications that are available. This is why I am delighted to have my next guest on the program. He is Ronan Levy. He is founder and executive chairman of Field Trip, and he's going to talk to us about psychedelic therapy and talk to us as well about the potential it has to redefine mental health treatment and the potential of the psychedelic industry in Canada and globally. This is certainly something that is going to lift us up, Ronan. Thank you so much for joining (laughs) me on the line from Toronto. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. Now, tell me, what is psychedelic therapy, and how does it work to treat depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, for example? Yeah, absolutely. So so psychedelic therapy, uh, you'll probably hear me actually refer to it as psychedelic-assisted therapy or psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, uh, same, same thing. Uh, really what it is, used, what it is, is using uh, molecules, drugs, uh, to enhance the effects of conventional approaches to therapy, even though psychedelic drugs like psilocybin uh, or magic mushrooms is the more common term, uh, and LSD and MDMA, or, or more commonly referred to as ecstasy, have been vilified um, over the last 
40 or so years uh, due to the war on drugs. In fact, there was there always has been a lot of therapeutic potential of all of these drugs that just got pushed to the side because more political agenda. Over the last 10 years or so, research has resumed into them and they're showing profound results. Uh, you know, what we're seeing is psilocybin-assisted therapy can provide antidepressant effects for up to five years after a single session. MDMA-assisted therapy in phase two and phase three FDA trials in the U.S., are providing an almost effective cure to PTSD, meaning that people no longer meet the criteria of having PTSD after three MDMA-assisted therapy sessions. Um, and so they're showing profound results and, uh, you know, truthfully at a time where uh, it is very much needed. It, it certainly is needed. And these drugs that you mentioned, magic mushrooms and MDMA, these these became party drugs or they're known as party drugs. But I would imagine that this is done in a controlled environment. Is that is that uh, when you control the dose um, f- for the particular person, is that what is beneficial? That's exactly right. Yeah. So again, we're talking about psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. So the way it's being administered right now, it's very different than cannabis, for example, which is where many people's heads go to when they hear about the reemergence of psychedelics. Cannabis is sold as a product where people take it home and do it by themselves. Psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is is a service. So people come into a clinical setting um, and the the drugs are administered there uh, and there's a therapist or a doctor present usually for the entire duration of the psychedelic experience following which there's a therapy session uh, or multiple therapy sessions to help people unpack what they experienced. Because what happens during a psychedelic experience is that people very often are able to revisit past traumas or past experiences or see uh, events in their lives from an entirely different perspective, which enables them to start the emotional processing that you would normally get to through conventional approaches to therapy, but it usually takes a long time, months or years uh, in conventional approaches where people can get there do the work, do the processing, and there's a number of other things going on, which I'm happy to go into, but they can kind of get to that point extremely quickly within a day uh, and start the processing. So that's why it's so exciting is that it's just really taking conventional approaches to therapy, but supercharging them. And so the psychedelic experience, how long does that experience last? The actual clinical depends. Yeah, it really depends on the drug that's being used. Now, I should be clear in Canada, psilocybin and MDMA are still scheduled drugs, uh, which means they're not accessible except through clinical trials right now. But we do anticipate the laws to change sometime in the next two to five years with respect to these drugs as uh, clinical trials get completed. Right now in Canada, we're working with ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Ketamine is a legal and approved anesthetic, as as you uh, well know, Uh, but it also provides a very psychedelic experience in the right context and and shows results very similar to what we've seen in the research around psilocybin and MDMA. And so in a typical ketamine-assisted therapy session, the ketamine lasts for about 45 minutes to an hour and a half when you're undergoing the psychedelic experience. Uh, and then there's about an hour afterwards during which you can decompress with a, with a therapist present. So you're in our clinic for, you know, three to four hours at a time. And a typical course of treatment would be about six um, ketamine, what we call ketamine exploratory sessions. So the ketamine experience plus that period to debrief with the therapist afterwards, interspersed, but with three integration therapy sessions. So three sessions after every two ketamine session, um, 
where it, there's no drug involved and just cognitive behavioral, more conventional cognitive behavioral techniques are applied. So you can take all of those insights and awarenesses and the neuroplasticity that follows and then turn it into action. That's amazing. Now, what benefits does it offer that current antidepressants lack? Put bluntly, it works, which is something that you can't really say for many antidepressants uh, these days. Uh, a little bit uh, less glibly, what we're seeing with psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is that people uh, can go, well, specifically with, with our, our ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, people can go weeks or months uh, without needing to take other medications, um, being depression-free or anxiety-free, or at least have substantially reduced depression or anxiety symptoms. Uh, and the nice thing and the really exciting thing about psychedelic-assisted therapy is that whereas with conventional antidepressants, which typically don't work for most people, and where they do work, uh, it's of limited improvement and it still comes with pretty severe side effects, the side effects associated with psychedelic-assisted therapy, besides, you know, with ketamine, a little bit of nausea potentially during the experience, uh, are, are incredible pro-social side effects. So people report increased creativity, increased empathy, increased regard for the planet, openness to other people's viewpoints. So the side effects uh, of psychedelics are, are, are much less, uh, the benefits much more sustained, uh, and the overall experience much more pleasant than the conventional antidepressants. So it's just the ketamine that's approved by Health Canada currently? That's correct. Um, the Minister of Health has granted about 20 or so exemptions from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act for people with end-of-life distress to access psilocybin-assisted therapy. So on a one-off basis, some people are getting access. Um, but uh, right now, ketamine is the only option that's broadly available to people. Okay. And uh, I know that there have been some psychedelic uh, clinical trials being run in Vancouver. Uh, what is Canada's role in shaping the psychedelic therapy um, industry? Mm-hmm. So Canada actually was very active early on in the research in the 50s and 60s. In fact, it was a Canadian. In fact, he was from the UK, but he was living in Saskatchewan who uh, coined the term psychedelic in the in the first place. Um, but uh, more recently, Canada has actually become the epicenter for the emergence of, of this new psychedelic industry. Whereas most of the research took place in the US or the UK because uh, Canada had built a very healthy, robust financial and capital markets industry for the cannabis industry. A lot of the pieces that were needed to put in place to build a psychedelic industry were here already. So most of the major companies uh, leading the psychedelic renaissance are actually coming out of Canada or at least are situated in Canada uh, through the Canadian Securities Exchange, which is where we're currently uh, publicly listed, uh, or the Toronto Stock Exchange. And so I, I gather there is a good potential for the psychedelics category in Canada and the world, perhaps? Absolutely. Uh, you know, if we're talking about it from a financial perspective, uh, it's. I think it's one of uh, the most significant opportunities we're facing right now, because right now, just in the U.S. alone, I don't have the Canadian statistics, but in the U.S. alone, they spend close to $250 billion per year trying to ha- treat mental health issues like depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And we can see by the results that it's not working. Uh, so you're targeting a very large industry. Globally, it's estimated that the global economy 
loses $8 trillion a year uh, from lost productivity to depression and anxiety. So, you know, beyond the humanitarian impacts, because I, I think everybody knows someone who suffered with depression or anxiety or other mental health challenges or, or eating disorders. It's another area of a lot of interest beyond the humanitarian, humanitarian considerations of these uh, therapies just being much more effective and much more meaningful than current approaches. Uh, the economic impact is absolutely profound as well. So it's an incredibly excited, exciting industry to be in uh, and, and, and from a number of different perspectives. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. We are talking, and I'm pretty excited about this, psychedelic experiences with Ronan Levy of Field trip. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Ronan. My pleasure. Uh, so we're talking about um, basically to sum up for those people who are just joining the program, um, psychedelic drug therapy, and the only one that's uh, available right now, and it's a psycho psychedelic experience um, is ketamine, is what has been approved by Health Canada. But there are there's some there's hope on the horizon that other psychedelics will be approved as well. Um, what tell me a little bit about um, anonymously, of course, some of the patients, how some of the patients have benefited, and what diagnoses they've had. And also, do they? A question I have is: Do they? Maybe you can answer this one first. Do they come off of their anti-anxiety or antidepressant medication, perhaps an SSRI, before they enter the psychedelic experience, or how does that work? Yeah, that's one of the nice things about ketamine-assisted therapy. Even though it doesn't quite have the uh, the same, you know, panache as talking about psilocybin or MDMA-assisted therapy, which really garners a lot of interest. One of the great advantages of working with ketamine is that people don't actually have to go off their current medications to try ketamine-assisted therapy. If we're looking at psilocybin or MDMA-assisted therapy, very often uh, a patient has to triage off their current approaches to try these new therapies. So there's, I guess, an added element of risk associated with it, even though the results are quite um, quite positive overall. And one thing that I, I should note that often doesn't get discussed often enough is just how safe uh, most psychedelic drugs are. Contrary to what we probably learned in high school, most psychedelic drugs like LSD, like psilocybin, like MDMA are generally non-addictive and they're very difficult to overdose on. So even though there may be a lot of concern around this, um, the truth is, is that they're quite safe, particularly when provided in a, in a therapeutic container like we do in our field trip health centers that are opening up uh, across North America right now. In, in terms of the ideal patient, um, you know, the truth is, is if you look at psychedelic assisted therapy as conventional therapy, which I personally think is something that everybody should experience at some point in their lives. If you think about it as conventional therapy being supercharged with drugs, uh, then it's, it's really something that I think many people could benefit from. That being said, where the research is right now and, and the patients we treat uh, typically have depression or treatment-resistant depression because that's the guidance, at least in Ontario, we've got from the College of Physicians in different jurisdictions. It can be more liberal. Uh, it is generally safe for a very broad population. Uh, there are some contraindications that tend to be limited. You know, if people have addiction issues, uh, you know, substance abuse disorders, then Sometimes 
using other drugs to try and help people get off uh, other addictions isn't appropriate, even though much of the early research on psychedelics was used in the context of addiction and substance abuse disorders. Um, so there may be some contraindications there, tend to be fairly limited. Uh, if you have uncontrolled high blood pressure, then ketamine may not be appropriate because it can elevate blood pressure. Uh, and, and people who may have certain breathing issues, again, because even though when you have the ketamine experience, you're not unconscious, it can slow your breathing a little bit, and, and so it may not be appropriate. But outside of those fairly narrow contraindications, I, I guess certainly also pregnancy and, and nursing is also a contraindication where we don't provide it. But outside of those narrow indications, it, it is something that's uh, probably safe and appropriate for many people, although the guidance, at least in Ontario, restricts us to only treating people with treatment-resistant mental health conditions. Okay, and is it conscious sedation, basically? Uh, uh, that's a good question. I, I don't think so. I mean, people are very lucid and conscious. I mean, the way it is delivered is we, we provide people with noise-canceling headphones. They put on uh, eye shades, uh, and, and they're really invited to go inwards because that's really where, and I hate to use this term in the context of a scientific medical treatment, but that's really where the magic happens um, is when people go inwards and reflect on their lives and their experiences. But they are very much conscious. They are very much lucid. Uh, they can continue to have a conversation uh, with a therapist present if needed. So it's not so far as sedation. It's, it's a sub-anesthetic dose with ketamine, uh, okay. but you definitely are in an altered or non-ordinary state of consciousness, as, as it's usually described. So it, it really has the potential to redefine mental health treatment. I mean, up till now, we've had, and, and, you know, they've been a tremendous help for a lot of people, SSRIs, but as you say, they come with a lot of side effects. There's um, antidepressant withdrawal syndrome. Uh, they don't work for a lot of people. Um, you know, when you say people have to go inward, is that generally depression that is a result of perhaps trauma as a child or a situational depression? Or uh, is it some is it for somebody who is experiencing anxiety and depression during perimenopause or, or menopause? It, it can be all of those. Um, you know, we work with patients who are just treatment-resistant depression, uh, no clear indication of trauma, uh, although I do think all of us experience trauma to some degree. I think that's just part of life. Uh, we've dealt with military veterans who have experienced firsthand extreme traumas. Um, you know, it really is across the spectrum. The invitation to go inward, uh, I think, is just, uh, truthfully, that's just the way it's done. It's the way it's, the where the research lies, um, because I think what happens, and at least the understanding right now of why psychedelic-assisted therapies are so effective, is because three things seem to happen. One is they are rapid anti, rapid acting antidepressants because they typically flood the system with serotonin. People feel a, a lift within 30 minutes or so of being administered the drug, uh, so you get a quick lift. People are able to go back and revisit, and sometimes it's not, you know, revisiting past trauma. Sometimes it's just connecting two dots that you haven't connected before. Sometimes it's just having a degree of objectivity to see something uh, from a different light. Sometimes things from your subconscious that you'd never clued into before of having an impact on you come to light and you see it that way. Um, you know, you have that emotional processing starting. And then the third piece, and this is where the integration part comes in and this becomes very important 
is that with most psychedelics, there's actually a period of neuroplasticity that follows the experience. So your your mind becomes much more malleable in, in a way similar to how children are much more adept at uh, adopting new skills or new languages because their mental models aren't as rigid as adults. Following a psychedelic experience, people's mental models are, are more malleable. Um, and so more conventional cognitive behavioral therapy techniques like motivational interviewing or behavioral activation can actually help people change the thought patterns that they have. So if it's a question of, you know, just changing the, the thought channels that you're using or getting more exercise or eating better or waking up early or all of these things that support a healthy, a healthy mental health attitude or framework can actually be implemented and adopted much more easily than someone who hasn't had a psychedelic experience. So when you kind of match all three of those experiences together, that's why it seems to be that these these experience, these therapies are so effective. Yeah, it sounds like it uh, has tremendous uh, potential and uh, can also work on motivation for a lot of people, which can, can bring people down as well. So uh, Ronan Levy, founder and executive chairman of Field Trip, what's the best way for people to learn more or get in touch with you? Best way to find us is through our website, which is fieldtriphealth.com. Uh, on all social uh, social media services, we're at Field Trip Health. If you'd like to reach out to me, uh, I'm at Ronan D as in David Levy uh, on Twitter and Instagram and all that kind of stuff. And always happy to hear from people. Uh, but uh, those are the best ways to get in touch with us right now. Fantastic. Thank you so much. for It's great information. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. It's a, it's a very exciting time to be in this industry. It certainly sounds it. Sounds like I need one of these experiences, too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks so much. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. We've got lots to talk about in this hour. Uh, we're going to get down and dirty in the uh, last half hour of the program. We're going to stick with all those Ds, down, dirty, and deniers, COVID deniers. These days, any symptom you have, you might think maybe it's COVID, even if it's heart palpitations. Low estrogen can increase cholesterol levels, which can further increase your risk of developing heart and circulatory disease. So maybe it's not COVID, maybe it's menopause. Joining me on the line from North Vancouver, British Columbia is... He's a cardiologist in private practice in North Vancouver at the North Shore Heart Center. He's head of cardiology at Lionsgate Hospital in North Vancouver, British Columbia. He's a consultant to the Whitecaps, Canucks, BC Lions, and he's also a clinical instructor for UBC residents and medical students. He is none other than Dr. John Weisler. Good evening, Dr. Weisler. Thanks for joining me. Uh, good evening, Marine. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to have you. Uh, the heart goes pitter-patter learning about all of these <laughs> uh, different uh, cardiovascular and, and heart health issues, especially for women. Now, so many women email me or come into my clinical practice and tell me about one particular uh, heart symptom, and that is heart palpitations. Now, women can... its Heart disease is the leading killer of women, and it's very... It, it increases, uh, the incidence is increased during menopause. So tell me just a summary about the menopausal heart. Well, well, sure. Um, I mean, um, before menopause, women have a lower risk of heart disease than men. 
Um, and menopause is kind of the time when that risk increases to be roughly equal amounts. Um, and then uh, later in life, in women in their 70s actually have a slightly higher risk of heart disease in men. So estrogen in particular is linked, um, estrogen that, we, that women have uh, before menopause is linked to a lower risk of heart disease. And it's been shown to have a number of different beneficial effects on the body. It, um, it relaxes blood vessels, so they um, dilate, and you have lower blood pressure. And they respond more if you're, you know, if you suddenly come under stress or something and your heart needs to work harder, the blood vessels can expand and accommodate that. Um, also, estrogen is good. It helps to helps uh, women to avoid plaque formation. So it helps to stabilize plaques and keeps them from getting worse. Um, estrogen is linked to a better cholesterol profile, higher levels of HDL, which is the good cholesterol, if you will, and lower levels of LDL, which is the bad cholesterol. And estrogen also has direct effects on the heart itself and the heart rhythm. So, you know, palpitations can sometimes be a sign of, uh, you know, heart rhythm disturbance. And so estrogen helps to reduce that and reduce the chance of that occurring. So when women lose estrogen as they go through the menopause and their levels decline, heart disease um, starts to become more of a concern or, or more common. And if you have a question for Dr. John Weissel, a cardiologist, the number to call is one 399 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. You can text us there as well, and I'll read your text over uh, the airwaves across Canada. Um, and if you've had a symptom or if you're wondering about something. Uh, so, Dr. Weisler, I'm not sure women realize just how important estrogen is. And, of course, uh, you know, oftentimes women will suffer with more well-known symptoms of menopause, like hot flashes and night sweats, and they are uh, prescribed estrogen, but they may not want to take it because they fear that their risk of cardiovascular disease will go up or breast cancer will go up. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, that treatment during menopause for women who are experiencing heart palpitations plus some of the other vasomotor symptoms that I mentioned? So estrogen can be extremely helpful and relieve those symptoms, which can otherwise make somebody uh, quite miserable as they go through menopause. Uh, and the cardiac safety for most women is pretty good, um, especially estrogen if it's used sort of in a time-limited fashion, um, maybe, you know, something like a transdermal, so through the skin approach or something other than a oral medication. The, the big fear that is out there comes from this Women's Health Initiative um, where, you know, it was a big study that was published in 2001. And, of course, estrogen, it was hoped, would confer a lot of benefits to women later in life after menopause. The thinking was if women receive estrogen and they also had to receive progesterone most of the time if, if they have a uterus, um, the, hope, the hope was that it would reduce the risk of heart disease. And the trial didn't show that because, and I don't know the, the full answer, but you know, giving estrogen is complicated. The human body is, is complicated. And so the Women's Health Initiative, when estrogen was given to women after menopause, it showed an increase in the risk of heart disease and breast cancer and other, other ailments. It's important to remember that that risk increase was small for most women. It was something like six to eight per 100,000 uh, patients or something like that. So it's a modest increase in risk for most people. Um, and most of that risk seemed to accumulate sort of in women that started estrogen, you know, around 10 years or more after menopause. So mm -hmm. estrogen given around the time of menopause or within about five years didn't seem to give that risk increase. So, I mean, I, I think the, the sort of bottom line data from that trial would be in a way that we shouldn't give estrogen long term with the hope of preventing 
heart disease or stroke, that was proven not effective. But um, the short-term sort of safety, say for a few years of using estrogen replacement around the time of menopause to combat these very unpleasant symptoms remains safe and very reasonable and is supported by, you know, most professional guidelines. If a woman comes into your clinical practice and she's postmenopausal and and for a few years she's been having sleep issues and hot flashes and night sweats and and maybe heart palpitations, I mean the heart palpitations are is your first thought um, menopause or are you going to work that woman up uh, for another uh, cardiovascular disease? Generally, I will uh, work the woman. I will work up the patient. I will do investigations because, you know, palpitations, that symptom that we get of our heart fluttering, it can just be a twitching muscle or, you know, nothing serious, something something in our chest wall that we can't really explain. But it can also be, you know, a rhythm disturbance of, of the heart. And, these, you know, young women can get rhythm disturbances even before menopause. And then as people get older, these become more common. And so what I like to tell people is that it's always worth knowing what your heart is doing when you get those symptoms. You know, we have a a lot of, you know, fairly easy to use monitors that people can wear. And so we want to make sure that their rhythm, that their heart is normal, or if it is a disturbance of the heart rhythm, it's nothing serious. Many, many rhythm disturbances are not serious, but it's important to know. And I've certainly seen patients that were told, you know, it was just anxiety or just your hormones or something. And when we finally, you know, saw what their heart was doing, uh, we actually saw that their heart went out of rhythm. So usually worth doing um, an investigation. So we call it a Holter monitor, a monitor you wear for a day, or there's there's other like patches and other monitors that are coming that are easy to wear. Um, and it's usually worth finding out what your symptoms are from, what your heart is doing when you get symptoms. So we can sort of make sure it's nothing serious. Of course. We have a caller on the line, Catherine from Surrey, British Columbia. Good evening, Catherine. Hi. I, I, I have been taking magnesium for several years, and it's really helped me. So I just wanted your take on, on magnesium. And, and how has it helped you, Catherine, if you don't mind? Well, if I come in contact with um, a lot of exhaust because I have MCS, chemical sensitivities, my heart will race. And then, then the doctor said, it, I have an extra heartbeat. So it feels like I'm on a swing. <laughs> it's a really, you know, how your stomach goes when you're going up in right. the swing. Mm-hmm. So um, I've been taking magnesium and it's really helped. Dr. Weiser, what are your thoughts on magnesium and, and what Catherine spoke of? Yeah, so I think it's a good um, treatment. It's a good uh, supplement for some people if their heart does that. Um, it's uh, it's generally very safe and, you know, some some oral forms of magnesium can uh, cause diarrhea, but that's annoying and it goes away when you stop it. And so there's, you know, there's like lotions you can put on if you get diarrhea. There's other, other forms. So, um, the, the you know, it hasn't been studied in like a huge clinical trial like some of the things in cardiology have. But many people report what, what you mentioned, Catherine, that it seems to help. And there is some rationale the way magnesium sort of binds um, to heart cells and to proteins in the heart cells, that it can help to calm down or stabilize the heart rhythm. So, I mean, many people report a benefit from magnesium if they have, whether it's the extra beats that you mentioned, so premature atrial or ventricular contractions, or other arrhythmias, they report that they get better with magnesium. And I think it's it's fine. It's generally a very well-tolerated supplement. And uh, I think that's very reasonable and something that you can keep in mind if you ever notice, you know, you're having palpitations yourself.
Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Cardiologist Dr. John Weisler is my guest. We're talking about heart health at menopause, the effect of estrogen on your heart health. Uh, Dr. Weisler, there's lots of changes as a result of the reduction in estrogen on the heart. Um, There is a particular abnormal heart rhythm that can occur, atrial fibrillation. Can you tell the listeners what that is and how that can impact a woman at menopause? Yes, uh, so atrial fibrillation is an arrhythmia to be, you know, wary of. And, you know, when we said before the break that you generally want to know what your, like when you feel palpitations, you want to know what your heart is doing. Atrial fibrillation is a big part of that. It's a common heart arrhythmia. So the top part of your heart, which is called the atria, um, it fibrillates, so it wiggles. It doesn't squeeze properly. And then the bottom portion of your heart, the ventricles, they go faster than normal and they beat irregularly. So you feel an irregular pulse and you can feel like your heart is skipping. The, the most important or the most serious consequence, because the top part of your heart isn't squeezing anymore, blood sits there. And when blood sits in some place, it can uh, form a clot. So atrial fibrillation is a big risk factor for stroke. So when, when, you, when I hear somebody and I, they say that they're, you're feeling palpitations or their heart racing, um, you know, we want to make sure that that's not the cause, because if it is, it may need treatment. It often needs a blood thinner to avoid the risk of stroke, and it may need other treatment. Um, and atrial fibrillation for both men and women does become more common with age. We do see an increase around and just after the time of menopause in women, again, possibly related to that withdrawal of estrogen that, that women experience as they go through menopause. Right. Um, Another thing that's very common is weight gain. Estrogen affects where women store fat and also how it is burned. Um, So when patients come into your clinical practice, especially in a time of COVID, and they are overweight, uh, perimenopausal, menopausal, postmenopausal, you know, is that part of the treatment plan? We know that menopause can cause the metabolism to slow, and that can also contribute to weight gain. And, and, and that would put stress on uh, one's heart and, it, and increase or worsen somebody's, increase the risk or worsen somebody's heart disease. So what would you recommend uh, to women at menopause uh, who, are, who are suffering with uh, weight gain? So, yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, an important thing to be aware of. And, you know, weight gain certainly is a concern. Uh, of course, we know it has many, um, you know, being overweight has many adverse effects on our health. Uh, and the heart is one of them. The heart has to work harder. It increases the chance of atrial fibrillation. And so you do want to be mindful of your weight. And around menopause, I, I like to sort of recommend uh, to, to women that it's a good time to sort of take stock of their heart health. So to know their weight and their other numbers like cholesterol and blood pressure and stuff like that. And then if um, patients are noticing their weight starting to increase, which is of course common with COVID because people aren't going outside as much or doing as much activities before in in many cases, um, it's important then to have uh, some sort of exercise program. Uh, A good minimum for people if they're not very active now is to aim for 150 minutes. So Um, two and a half hours per week of moderate intensity exercise. So that's things like walking or gardening or doing yard work. It has to be at least sort of 10 minutes at a time to keep your heart rate elevated for you to get the, for you to get the benefits. So that's a good like rule of thumb for most people. More is better. So if you want to be really good, you aim for 300 minutes a week, but 150 is a, is a good place to start. And again, more strenuous, you get more benefits. So if you are going to run or something, that's better. But again, if for people that are sort of maybe not getting enough activity, 150 minutes a week in intervals of 10 minutes or more is, is a good place to start. So regular exercise and then, you know, starting to pay attention if you haven't before 
uh, to your diet. If you see the scale starting to increase, that's sort of a sign that now you really got to take stock of, you know, how many extra calories are you eating? Do you, you know, do you need a drink with dinner every night? Do you know, are you, are you sneaking anything? Is there anything you can sort of reform to be a little bit more healthy without stressing out too much? But it's, it's a good way to, it's a good sort of wake up call that you should be reviewing your diet. And so that's what, that's sort of the, the two-sided approach that I would start with for a lot of patients. And a couple of other symptoms I want to mention. One is swelling of the feet and the other is difficulty lying flat. Um, so, you know, maybe it's a symptom of pool, fluid pooling in your lungs. Um, what can the, these be uh, the so, result of? Yeah, so the, the, big, um, the big one that you, you know, want to make sure that you don't have when you have those symptoms is, is heart failure where, you know, where your, your heart doesn't uh, squeeze well enough um, and, and pump blood as efficiently as it should. So fluid backs up because the heart's kind of like a pump that takes um, blood from the veins and it has to pump it forward through the arteries to the organs that need it. Um, so if the pump doesn't work as well, the fluid doesn't move as well as it should be. So the, the trouble breathing when you lie down occurs because you've got a little bit of fluid at the bottom of your lungs. And then if you lie down, the fluid redistributes and it makes it harder for you to breathe. That is potentially more concerning. If you have that, you should definitely check in with your doctor. There are other causes. So, you know, it doesn't automatically mean you have heart disease, but it's worth you know, checking that over. Swelling of the ankles is more common and it can, you know, just occur um, because our, our veins and our legs, they, they dilate and they swell and they allow blood to leak into the surrounding tissue. That is much less serious. That often occurs as we grow older. Some medications can also cause that. But again, if it's, if it's especially if it's a new symptom, it's worth having that reviewed by your doctor to make sure that it isn't something more serious with your heart that uh, would need treatment. And I'm glad to hear you're talking about exercise because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, those women who exercise tend not to get high blood pressure as frequently as those who do not exercise? That's right. It's a tremendously effective, um, you know, intervention. Uh, It's, it's, you know, I, I don't, some doctors will write it like as a prescription. You must do this because they, they think it like convinces the patient more to have that in their hand. I'm not sure. I, I don't do that. But I certainly tell them, like, you know, you, you could take a medication, but it's probably better for, and it is better for you overall because exercise has so many other benefits outside of the heart. But it's better to start with exercise first. And that may be enough that you, you know, that you don't need to go on medication. So it, it makes a huge difference to stay active. And it, and it has a, a, a strong effect in reducing blood pressure for both men and women. Awesome information, Dr. Weisler, as usual. And I think you have uh, underscored the fact that heart disease in menopause is preventable with all of your great suggestions. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.